We're going to dedicate this year in memory of Shai's great-grandfather, David ben Shmuel Naftali, should be in Louis for his neshama. Okay. Parshat Bahar. I want to tell you something. If you asked me what probably the most difficult moment for me in four and a half years in the army, I would bet that you will not guess this one. Okay? <coughs> Obviously, you know, ambushes, firefights, people getting killed, that's all. But that's like, that's big. That's like, you have to deal with it. Listen to the toughest moment. Um, I was in the army maybe two or three weeks. And my brother had warned me about this. My older brother was already in the army. He was in the paratroopers. And he said to me, there's one thing you got to watch out for. There were a few things he warned me about, but this was one of them. He said, eventually you're going to have to do kitchen duty. He said, do whatever you can to avoid kitchen duty, but eventually you're going to have to do kitchen duty. When you get to do kitchen duty, you're going to see. There's a little guy, he's going to show up. He's going to have a cigarette hanging out of the corner of his mouth. And you're not going to understand the single word he says. Okay, he's not going to say, Lech tenaketa, he's going to say, Right? And this is his kingdom. And he's going to do Right? And I thought my, father, my brother was kidding around. He's also very funny. Sure enough, a few weeks in, I finally get picked. We have to go to kitchen duty. You have to wake up early. You get to the kitchen like at uh, 4.35 in the morning. You're miserable. You slept three hours. And this guy shows up. He's like half my size, a little guy in a, with a white T-shirt. He's got a cigarette hanging out of the corner of his mouth. He goes, and I lost it. I just, I saw my brother and I started laughing hysterically. And he looks at me like as angry a look as a human being comes up. Which means you have a problem, right? In their language. And he sent me to this room with one other guy. It was the biggest laughing mistake I ever made in my life. We go into this room, right? And it's full of pots. They're all filthy. Okay? It's a whole day's worth of pots from a base that has about a thousand soldiers. They're literally piled high to the ceiling. Disgusting. Nobody soaked them in water, chulin pots and meat pots and echvesnish pots, whatever. There's one room of meat pots, one room of milk pots. And he goes, right? Clean all these pots. And he would come back every hour or two to see the working on the pots. Okay? Now, it's impossible to describe how depressing this is. You have to stand, you're exhausted, you have to scrub them clean. You know, even though you don't know, that if they're not clean, you know, you're gonna get in trouble. So you clean them, right? And, and you have to stack them, and they come back and say, no, don't do it this way, and stack them that way, and whatever it is. And it's like about 11 o'clock at night, you've been on your feet all day, you had like 15 minutes in the middle where you were allowed to eat lunch, and that was it. You can't keep your eyes open, you're exhausted. And it's like 11, 11.30 at night, and this same cook comes back in. And he walks in, and the pots are pretty much done. You're like scrubbing up the sinks now, right? And he walks over, right? And he picks up three or four pots and puts them down. And he picks up a pot in the middle of the pile. And he takes it down, and he goes like this. Like, do you see this? He says, oh, pam. Clean them all again, and he walks out. And I look at the guy who was with me, and the two of us, the look of despair on his face, which mirrored my own was beyond description. This was probably the low point of my entire army career. And you have no choice, okay? You are their slaves. You're not servants, you're slaves. And they do with you what they will. And if you don't do what they say, you know, first of all, you'll have to do it again tomorrow. And second of all, you'll lose Shabbat and some other terrible punishment, right? 
And afterwards, I thought about this. It took me a long time to learn how to deal with these cooks and how to get better at it. You know, by the way, what's the best way to deal with a cook in the Israeli army? If anybody goes to the Israeli army, yeah. takes one item. No. no. Chocolate bar. You just show up with a chocolate bar. That's it. You're a melech for a kid. It took me a while to learn it. Right? So why did that moment bother me so much? Why was it so painful? So let me share with you an idea. Okay? This is a powerful idea. And I think this is, idea is going to relate to the sort of final few weeks of this particular learning year that we're in. Okay? So there's an interesting mitzvah that appears in this. This is Parshat Bahar. And Parshat Bahar starts or discusses what, what famous mitzvah? Right. 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 Okay, the beginning of Parshat Bahar. Uh, sorry. Okay, when the Jewish people come into Eretz Israel, Moshe speaks to us at Har Sinai. When the Jewish people come into Eretz Israel, the land shall rest; it shall experience Shabbat Lashem. Right? Sheva Six years you work the land, you can you know prune the, the, the vineyards. In seventh year, the seventh year is Shabbat. There's two questions here, one of which we're not going to get to, but whatever. It gave phrase to a famous idiom. What famous idiom comes from the beginning of this week's passage? Anybody know? Okay, you will hear this. If you are, um, uh, I don't know, you're hailing a cab and the cab stops. And um, you say to him, um, do you know where there's some grocery bags? Stop a cab to ask him about grocery bags. He'll say to you, he'll drive off. Right? My Shemitah at Salah is a Rashi here. What is Shemitah? Why does it have to say Bahar Sinai? Why do I need to know about Shemitah? The seventh sabbatical year where the land lies fallow, Bahar Sinai. Okay. Right? Interesting that the mitzvah that I'm about to discover, to discuss with you, comes right after Shemitah, right after this mitzvah, that in the seventh year the land lies fallow. We don't work the land. Okay. Put that in one corner of your brain. Alright? Listen to this mitzvah. So somebody's downtrodden. Maybe he's poverty-stricken. Maybe he stole money. Maybe he has a gambling debt. He doesn't, can't pay them back. So what do you do with such a person? What does he do? He can, how does he get out of this hole? Right? He can, he can become an indentured servant. He can sell his services himself, whatever it is. Okay? You're not, don't think of him as a slave. He's not just a slave. You can't work him and enslave him. The most you can have him is till the Jubilee year, the 50th year. Some of us know what that means. It doesn't matter for the moment. Right? Can't take advantage of him. And he eventually will leave you and his family and whatever. Because they're my servants, they're not your servants. Okay, fine. And then the Torah adds a Pasuk. You cannot oppress him. With Farech, we'll talk about that in a second. You should fear Hashem, you should be in awe of Hashem. You're not allowed to work him a particular type of work. It's called Avodat Farech. Now let's think for a second. Where do we find this term, Avodat Farech? Yeah? Beginning with Shrine, right? You look in Sefer Shmot, 
This would have been the great, if you remember this after tonight, you'll have a great Torah for Parshat Shmot, Parshat Vaira, Parshat Bo, right? Even Bashalach, because you could talk about slavery, the Pesach Haggadah for seven days. This is a great Torah, right? Vayavidu Mitzrayim et Bnei Yisrael Befarech. The Torah takes time to tell me that the, that the Egyptians enslaved us with work that's called Farech. Now, there are two explanations for Farech. One of them does not exactly fit with Pshat, with the context. It's more a discussion about how a group of people whose, I guess, protector was the Mishnel Melech, was like the vice president, the second highest in the land. And somehow, an entire people becomes totally enslaved. So some of the say, Al-Tikri Farech, don't read it as Farech, but Perach. What is Perach, a soft mouth? The Egyptians started their enslaving of us by deceiving us. And there's a whole description about how that works. But there is another definition of Farech. What is Avodat Farech? So Rashi explains. Avodat Farech in Shemot, right? Avodat Kasha. This is hard labor. It's, it's labor that breaks the body. It's working in the stone quarry and carrying bags. Anybody see the movie Unbroken? Or read the book, okay, about a true story about a fellow in World War II ended up in a Japanese POW camp? That was Avodat Farah. Hold up a beam for 10 hours, carry cement bags up and down ramps after a beating, right? Avodat Farah. Lashon Shivron, who says the Rambam, Rajbam. It's a language of breaking a person. You're not allowed to take an indentured servant and work him with back-breaking labor. Okay. But now it gets interesting, right? Because that's not what Rashi says. Listen to what Rashi says. Rashi quotes the Medrash from Torah's Kanyim, and he says the following. Lo tirdeb right? Melachash Work, you know, like give him work that he doesn't need to do. Don't give him busy work, stupid work. You know, you got a person in the office, you don't have to do them and say, you know what, I want you, to, I want you to rearrange the files alphabetically. And then come back an hour later and she's done that, and say, or he's done that, and you say, okay, now I want you to do it in color coordinate. I don't like this. It's busy work. You don't know what to do with the person, right? Alto Marlo, for example, says Rashi, this is the Medrash of Doris Karnim, hachem li et don't tell him, you know what, heat up, the, heat up some water for me when you don't need to heat up water. Pull the weeds out from under the vines here until I get back. It's like stupid work. There's no limit to it. Shema tomar, unless you say, he doesn't know that I don't need this work. Like I've got a servant. If I don't give him what to do, he's going to get bored, he's going to get lazy. I've got to give him work to do. So I'll tell him I need this. I'll tell him, boil a cup of water, because I'm gonna, I need it for something. I have to tell him. Shema to Marshall, lest you say, Ein makir badavari in He doesn't know if it has a need. And I tell him I need it. It really depends on what you're really thinking, what your intention is. And therefore, the post again is, Hashem knows whether you're giving him work to do, that, thank you, that needs to be done. Okay? You can't give a guy dumb work. Now that, of course, raises an interesting question, which is, why can't you give him busy work? And what does this have to do with Shemitah? Why is this the topic that immediately follows Shemitah? And then it gets really interesting, because that's Pasuk Mem Gimel. That's the 43rd Pasuk. If you look ahead three Pasukim, 
it says again, right? You're not allowed to oppress your brother with backbreaking work if he's a servant. Well, we just said that three psukim earlier. Why is the Torah repeating this? Rashi here says something interesting. Rashi focuses on the word ish. What does it mean, ish be'achiv lo What's an ish? Let's see how good we've gotten with pshat. What do you think the word ish means? A man. What does that mean? Where do I see that? Yeah? Like you see it in Amorashi's talking about a man like understanding himself. When I look for pshat, Remember at the beginning of the year, we said if I don't know what a word means in a Pasuk or, and I look at the Pasuk, Vayomer Lokim He or, that Pasuk is not going to help me understand that word. But if I keep reading, Vayar Lokim at the Orkito, if God sees the Or is good, now I know the Or is good. That still doesn't tell me what it is, it just tells me it's not an Elfeichman. And then if I keep reading and I see, Vayavdel Lokim ben Aaron over the Choshech, Hashem divides between Or and darkness, Vayikra Lohim Laor Yom, and Hashem calls the Or day, Vayachoshech Karalale, calls the darkness night. So or is today as darkness is tonight. I figure out the word or means light. That's pshat. Pshat is the, 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 the explanation that is ripped from the text. They strip Yosef of his technical code. So in order to understand pshat, I've got to look and see what else it appears. Where do I find the word ish? Where do I find the word ish? Yeah? Pardon? No, 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 in the Torah. Yeah? That's true. And that would actually fit. But I'm looking for earlier. Yeah? No? Pardon? Oh, Noach was an ish tadik. So Noach was an ish. Who else was an ish? Adam. Adam. Pardon? Yaakov. Remember the story with Moshe? Moshe Rabbeinu comes out. There's a mitri. He's, he's beating a Jew. He looks back and forth. He sees there's no ish. Pirkei Ovest does a play on this pasuk and says, Whenever you're in a situation where you realize there's no ish, Try to be that ish. Sometimes you're in a situation where it's clear that there's a need. Somebody has to step up. Try to be the person who steps up. You know? It's like, uh, it's like you have two kind of authors. You have a person who writes a book because he wants to be an author. You have a person who sees there's a book that needs to be written. So he writes the book and he becomes an author. He's not looking to be an author. He's looking to write a book. You see there's a need for someone to stand up and be counted. You know, you're, you're in the dining room and uh, you only sends a message, I need somebody to help with the pots. You look around, nobody's volunteered. Be the ish, volunteer. So Rashi says, what is the ish here? So he says, ish, not just I'm not allowed to give my servant work for no purpose or backbreaking work, we'll get back to that in a second, but even if I'm the king, a Jewish king is not allowed to force his servants to hard labor. This is a principle in Judaism. Why not? What's the big deal? And you know what's really interesting to me is, we already, Rashi is the master of Pshat. There's no way that Rashi in Vayikra forgot what he said at the beginning of Shemot. So Rashi, if you and I immediately realize that the word Farah reminds us of the beginning of the story of the Exodus, then you can be sure that Rashi was aware of this. So Rashi knows that Farah is backbreaking work. He said that. And that's Pshat here. Why doesn't Rashi say that? Why does Rashi say that here, Avodat Farah is telling a guy to, I don't know, heat up the water. Right? It doesn't seem to make sense. By the way, it's interesting. Okay? If you look in the Rambam, 
Well, first of all, yeah, if you look in the Rambam, the Rambam Hilchos Avadim, where would I find Hilchos Avadim? The laws of uh, servants? Pardon? Close? Shabbatim is Ben Adon Lefer. It wouldn't be an Avodah, it's not the base of English. Kenyan. Laws of acquisitions. The last set of Allah was the laws of acquisitions. So listen to what he says, okay? Because you make an acquisition, you made a contract to, to buy a person's servitude. So this is what the right, this is fascinating by the laws of Avadim, but not for now, okay? Um, an indentured servant, a person who was sold by the Bezdin because he owes money or stole money and he can't pay it back, or he sells himself to cover his debt. Now, if you get to Allah Hay and Allah Vav, listen to what the Ram says, which is not really a slave, it's an indentured servant. In fact, the Rambam here quotes the Gemara, if you acquire the services of an indentured servant, you're actually acquiring a master. If you have one pillow in the house, you give it to him. If there's only enough food for one meal, you have to give it to him. Social rights, protection existed for an indentured servant before people in the rest of the world were even thinking about these things. Listen to Allah Chavav. This is unbelievable. Now, mind you, this is the Rambam based on the Medrash Kohanim and on the Gemara. He's writing this in the 11th, in the 12th century 600 years before the Americans come up with the Constitution. 500 years before there's an English Parliament. It's unbelievable. So listen to what he says. It is prohibited, it's an Isra Doraisa, to work a person in Farech work. What is Avodat Farech? He comes up with another definition. This is work that has no limit. Or work that's unnecessary. What does it mean, work that has no limit? Right? So he says, You're not allowed to tell a person, just, just you know, mow the lawn until I get back. Not allowed to do that. Why? Because you haven't given him a set time. Okay. Right? By the way, let's say I give him my brand new Black & Decker lawnmower vehicle with three different speeds and a stereo system. And I say to him, listen, mow the lawn until I get back. Am I allowed to do that? No. No. Why? Because I haven't given a limit. And the Ramam goes on. And he says, Mow the lawn until you get to that spot. Or mow the lawn for two hours at 10 o'clock stop. That you're allowed to do. What's the difference? It's interesting. And it's interesting, by the way, that again, the, Ram, the Rambam doesn't here talk really about, 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 uh, about Farah as backbreaking work. So which is it? Let me ask you an honest question. If you had a choice, why does Rashi do this? Why does the Rambam do this? If you're a servant and you have two choices, he can take you to the quarry and he can say, quarry the stones, right? Uh, until 10 o'clock tonight. And I better not catch you slacking off. And there's 500 stones, and they got to be moved to the other side of the road because you're building a sidewalk. And it's clear that, you know, why you're doing it. It's backbreaking work. Or he says to you, I just want you to boil up uh, cups of water. Now we'll see, maybe we'll need them, maybe just keep boiling cups of water. So you sit in his kitchen, you got a good magazine, you turn on the kettle. And every two or three minutes, you turn it on again. You pour a few cups of water, and you turn it on again. You know? I just want you to stay here and hold the newspaper for me. Great. Nope, not allowed to do that. Because that's Avodat Farah. Why is that Avodat Farah? What does it mean that, that, that 
And you want a great example of this? The Torah Tamima. Torah Tamima was a Baruch Halevi Epstein. He was the son of the Yerach HaShulchan. I've talked to you about him before. Listen to what the Torah Tamima says. Torah Tamima quotes the Gemara, right? In, sorry, the Medrash and Torah's Karnim, right? Zoe Avodakasha. Sorry. Amr Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachmani, Amr of Yonatan, which is a Gemara in Sota. Shayu, what would the Egyptians do? What was Avodat Farah? What was backbreaking work? Shayu machlifin melechet anashim lenashim, u melechet nashim lenashim. They gave the women men's work, and they gave the men women's work. And the Torah to me explains, because they weren't used to doing this, so it became backbreaking work. They, they, they upended the way people work. Now, why is that backbreaking work? Like, what is this all about? What is going on here? And what does this have to do with Shemitah? Now, on the one hand, Rav Avigdor in his Sichot on Sefer Shemot says, when you're unaccustomed to doing something, it makes it more difficult. Right? We can all think of things that we've done. Once you get the hang of it, it becomes easier. Okay, right? I'll give you an example. I want to just share with you an idea. I remember, I couldn't have been married more than a few months. It's definitely our first year of marriage. And I had to go to Miluin. I had reserve duty. And the day before I go to reserve duty, so you get out all your gear, you get your uniform, whatever it is. And I took out my arm and you try them on, do they still fit, whatever, make sure you take the right pair. And I realized that a button had fallen off my pants. So I said, okay, I gotta sew the button. So I had an army sewing kids, so take it out, you know. And I start, you know, I'm gonna sew this button back on my pants. It's not a difficult thing to do. Now in order to sew the button on the back of your pants, what's the third thing you have to do if you wanna sew a button onto your pants? Pardon? Nope, what's the first thing? We got the trousers off there, sitting there. You got a pair of trousers, you got your sewing kit, you got a button, whatever. What do you have to do? You have to thread the needle. So I get this, it's, and it's thick, it's like thick army gray like thread, whatever, and this needle. And I'm trying to thread the needle. Now my wife comes in and she says, oh wow, you have to sew, here I'll do that for you, you want me to help you? She's like, no I got this. Cause like, I can do this, right? I've been in the army four and a half years, I can sew a button on my pants, man. I got this, right? And she's like, no really, I don't mind, I'll help you, right? I was like, no, okay, I got this. And I'm like, you know, I'm trying to get the, the, the you know, so I, I, you know, and it goes through, and I prick my finger right, and I'm sitting there, and my wife is just watching this, and at one point she's laughing, and finally she says, I just, I can't, and she comes over to me, she takes the needle, and here, right, and walks out of the room, right, she just, I don't know, I don't know how she did that, right, we're good at different things, and what Rashi's saying here is, you know, I, I can understand how a woman doing a man's work, again, we were not talking about 2022, and I don't want anybody to interpret that I think that there's women's work and man's work. If you've ever been to my house, you know that's not true, right? That being said, in ancient Egypt, there for sure were jobs that were meant for men and jobs were meant for women, right? They didn't get a group of women to go hoist the blocks up on top of the tower. So I understand if a woman is made to do man's work, that must have been difficult. But the man has to do the woman's work. And she's washing dishes, I don't know. Seems a little easier. What the Torah here is trying to do is communicate an idea. 
that's much deeper than whether or not I have a hard time lifting a bag of cement. And I will give you a great example. I think I probably told you the story, but it's worth retelling. I met a fellow once at a Pesach program. He was a Holocaust survivor. I used to love to meet these people. I must have had serious conversations in my life with 100 Holocaust survivors. I think it's a mitzvah to meet these people, certainly today. Anyway, got into a discussion with this fellow. He and his family, they didn't have any numbers, they didn't have any camps. They got out just in time, right? And he was already an adult. He was married, he had a job, and he got out of Germany in 1938. So I asked him, what made you decide, like how did that work, what made you decide to leave? Now I know a little history, and I know there were still plenty of Jews, at least until Kristallnacht. There were many Jews who thought, okay, they'll ride out the storm. There have been times before. Remember, they're only 20, 30 years out of pogroms in Russia. So we'll ride this out. This one will disappear too. They always try to destroy us, right? He said, actually, I can tell you exactly the moment that I realized it was time to get out. He was, I think he was an accountant. I don't remember. But I remember he told me he had a car. Now, it wasn't so common. Not everybody had a car. But he had a car. And he used to drive from his house to work. And because he had a car, so he was able to navigate around the areas that were dangerous to walk in. And that was his mission, to get to work without having to go through any roadblocks or, or be bothered. And most of the time he could avoid it. He didn't fall into like, you know, brown shirts or Nazis or whatever. But one day, he's driving home from work. He wasn't paying attention. And he drove right into a little rally. Right? And people are standing around. And somebody spots him. And I guess they figured out that he was Jewish. Right? I think they were already wearing white stars, but I could be wrong. And they hauled him out of his car. And the next thing you know, he's thrown on the ground. He's in the middle of a circle. He's surrounded by... Actually, it was in Austria. It wasn't Germany. Right? He was surrounded by, by, by a, a large group of, you know, Nazis, you know, non-Jews jeering and laughing. And there are a few Jews, Nebuch, and they're on their knees. And they've been given scrub brushes. And they're scrubbing paint. And he suddenly realizes that they're in front of Gestapo headquarters. They're in front of police headquarters. And someone had painted a big mug and David in red paint in front of Gestapo headquarters. And he got really angry. What idiot decides to make a point that he's going to show them and he's going to draw a mug and David in front of Gestapo headquarters without even thinking about the fact that the Germans are not going to clean it up. They're going to get some hapless Jews. And he's just getting angrier and angrier and he's more and more frightened. And every once in a while he gets a swift kick in his petard and they're yelling at them and if they're not fast enough and they're not quick enough. And all he wants to do is scrub this mug and dove it out so that he can get it done and get out of there. And finally, after an hour or so of this, they succeed in scrubbing out the, the red paint and the sidewalk is clean again and he breathes a sigh of relief and he's thinking, okay, it'll just be a matter of time, right? And people are laughing and having a good time. It takes about a minute. And a Gestapo policeman comes out, got a big bucket, right? And he pulls a brush and he kicks the Jew and he says, no, right? And the Jew paints a red star. And then the Nazi looks at them and he gives them a couple of kicks and he snaps his fingers and everybody roars hysterically. And he suddenly realizes he's in Dante's Inferno. There's, there's no end to this. There, there, there's no purpose to what they're doing. It's a terrifying moment. And that's when he decided that there's no logic to this. They just hate us. It's time to get out. Working for a purpose 
meaning that motivates us. When you feel that that's no purpose, that breaks you. You're not allowed to cause another human being to feel that there's no purpose. If you give a guy work to do and there's no limit, there's no purpose to it. There's no meaning to it. That was the ultimate enslavement. Avodat Farah in its ultimate form was not about how physically difficult the work was, it was how mentally difficult work was. I think what was difficult for me about that moment in that army base was I suddenly realized that all the work I was doing had no meaning. There was no purpose. I was, at the, I was under the women control of some little Gestapo Israeli army sergeant who was going to do with me whatever he wanted. There was nothing I could do about it. Now, I want you to understand. Doing things without purpose, that's what drains you in life. There is nothing more important than finding out what drives you and discovering purpose in everything that you do. Right? In fact, the entire... You know, I remember once, I met this uh, fellow. He came to an Israelite uh, series. He was, I believe he was a neurosurgeon. And he was burnt out. And I remember one of the lines he said to me. You know, I said, like, what made you leave it? Why did you come to Israel? I know, what, a, what an incredible thing to be a neurosurgeon. To have trained. To be able to operate on a human being's brain and, and heal him. That's just unbelievable. He goes, you know what? He goes, if I had to say to one more patient who comes to me, if I have to listen to one more guy who I operate and say, thank you for saving me and doing this, he says, I couldn't take it anymore. Only to watch them go back to bed and die 10 years later. What's the point? He was doing something so incredibly meaningful, but for him it had no meaning. And I'll give you the, 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 the antithesis of that. I have a good friend, came here many years ago one summer on this program called Sarel. Have you heard of Sarel? No. I don't know whether to call this an amazing program or a ridiculous program, but it's fascinating. They get a group, they come from America or from overseas, and they bring them to an army base. And they give them an army uniform so they feel like they're on an army base. And they live in army barracks, and they eat army food, and they give them a job, right? And they have like an army sergeant or whatever it is. In their case, it was like an army sergeant who was a soldierette, and she was responsible for them. And she like did things like, you know, took them through the obstacle course and ran them around the base. They really more like half walked and all these kinds of things, right? And they got to walk around in uniforms. And his job for these two and a half weeks was sorting nuts and bolts. I kid you not. He had a big bucket, and it was full of nuts and bolts. right? And he would take the bolts and put them in one jar, and the nuts and put them in another. And then the next week, they were sorting, uh, tell me, they were sorting uh, shell cases. They had to pick up and sort shell cases. And he felt like he was doing something that was helping the Israeli army. And it was during the Intifada, and he said it was such an incredible experience. I remember thinking to myself, like, oh my God, shoot me. If somebody told me that I had to sit and sort nuts and bolts all day, I'd go out of my mind. And he loved it. And you know why he loved it? Because he felt it was meaningful. And by the way, for the record, he was right. If you can do work like that all day, because of that, an Israeli soldier doesn't have to do it, that's a mitzvah. But to be able to do something like that all day and actually make it meaningful, that's unbelievable to me. You can take the most meaningful job. If it has no meaning, it'll break you. You can take the most meaningless job. If you give it meaning, it'll build you. That is the secret of life. Think about everything we've been doing here. You're saying a particular tefillah every day, sometimes three times a day, and you don't know what it means. It has no meaning. It's like gibberish. So that breaks you. If you get up every morning and you go to Minyan and you don't know what you're saying and you don't make the effort to figure it out and it's meaningless to you, then that'll break you. 
If you take a moment, you take that same sentence. I don't know, some of us had a discussion this week about Shalom Asani Avid, right? Uh, you know, do you make the bracha of Shalom Asani Avid if you're in prison, if you're a servant? And I shared with you that, you know, the Kloisenberger Rebbe who was in the camps and the Bluzhova Rebbe who was in uh, uh, Bergen-Belsen, they said this bracha in the camps. Because being an Eved is not about where you are, it's about who you are. Now, if, 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 to me, that bracha every morning is an unbelievably meaningful experience. To take a moment and to say, I choose what I decide to serve in life. I don't want to be a servant to things that I... So then that transforms my life into meaning. Right? Jews realize that the Egyptians or later the Nazis were just trying to break them. Okay? And how did we fight against that? You know... I told you when we went to Yad Vashem, you go to the, we're almost done. You go to, you go to we're almost done. You go to Yad Vashem, okay? And, and you, 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 you get to that central plaza, and there's this powerful sculpture of Mordechai and Alevich, and it's like the Warsaw Ghetto, remember this? And then outside there's this sculpture, and it's like Nebuch, you know, the, the rabbi of the Sefer Torah, downtrodden and destroyed. Because look at the Warsaw Ghetto fighters, and then they fought back, and look at the sheep who went to the slaughter. But you know what? If a Jew is putting on tefillin in the ghetto, if, he, if he's saying kriyachma when he walks into the gas chambers, then he's saying that every minute of life has its own meaning. That no matter how hard they try to break us, we refuse to be broken. That's the secret. And, and I remember this. I remember that when I was in Lebanon, on Kav, on, uh, what's the word, Kav? Uh, whatever, the missions we were doing in Lebanon... Every mission that you did, you realized that, you know, there could be terrorists out there. You were protecting people. You went through difficult experiences. You got shot at, whatever. You know, later in Miluim, I remember I once did a reserve. Did we were along the Egyptian border. Now, we have peace agreement with Egypt. And this was the quietest Miluim I ever did. There was nothing to do. You sat in a jeep for eight hours. And you went, like, at five kilometers an hour all night long up and down the border. Right? The only thing you could do, and the gashash, the, the, the person who was, who was you know, looking for tracks, he insisted on driving because he didn't want to fall asleep. So you didn't have anything to do except eat garinim or smoke cigarettes. It was crazy. And you would think that that's so much better. It was such a hard meal in because you don't feel like you're doing anything. So whether or not we're avadim, and whether or not we live a life of farach that breaks us is entirely dependent on us. And that, I believe, is the connection where this will finish. And then I want to open up the floor to questions. That, that is why this is connected to Shemitah. What is Shemitah? What does it mean to take a year, a sabbatical year, and let the land lie fallow? Six years you work. Six years you're sowing the seeds. And you're, one year you've got to take a break. You know what the Jews did, by the way, during Shemitah year? Anybody know? What they did? They sat and learned Torah. The entire country stopped working and they just sat and learned. And just like, by the way, why is Shemitah called Shabbat Aretz? Because just like for a day a week, you take a pause. Six days a week, you're supposed to work. You're supposed to be partners in creating the world. One day a week, you have to take, the, take a step off the ride. Think about what am I doing all this for? So you had this year to kind of slow down. Think about what's all this work for? What are we trying to build here? What's the meaning of my life? This mitzvah is about the fact that an Evid Ivri is not a chance to break someone. It's to be a partner in rehabilitating someone. So if you give him backbreaking, purposeless work, you're not rehabilitating him. You're breaking him. And at a deeper level, as we get 
closer. We're halfway through Sfirat Omer, right? We, we're just about to enter the end of four weeks. We're, we're now closer to Shavuot. We've left Egypt behind. We're free, but free for what? The Torah is supposed to give us meaning in life. And I actually think, just to finish it off, right, that that's, um, that's the challenge of this month. You know, Parshat Bahar always falls between Yom Atzimut and Yom Yerushalayim. Because after 2,000 years of exile, after the Holocaust, when the Jewish people said, what are we doing here? Comes along Yom Atzimut and Yom Yerushalayim and teaches us, we've rediscovered the meaning of the Jewish people. There was a purpose to all of this, because we've come home after so long. And the challenge of Kaitzman is to begin to think, what was the purpose of all this? Like, what are we doing here? And, you know... It doesn't matter if I think that learning a piece of Gemara is an incredibly meaningful thing to do. At this point of the year, whether your learning is meaningful is completely on you. If you feel like a certain part of the day you're struggling, don't settle for that. Find something to learn that you can really invest yourself in. Like for whatever the reason, Hashem said, you're going to be here for another three weeks. Don't waste those three weeks. Fill them with meaning. And if you're not sure how to fill them with meaning, don't let us off the hook. We're happy to share with you different things you can do. I would rather see a guy learning Hasidus or Parshat Shavu or reading the Hamalevich, you know, and, and having an incredible, meaningful learning day. So that, you know, six weeks from now, when you're sitting wherever you are in the summer back in Echvesnish land, you're still learning and it's meaningful, then you milk this year for what it was worth. That's the challenge of Abu Dhabi. So that's a little bit of food for thought on Parshat Bahar.